Uh, but today we're in Psalm 130, and it's only eight verses long, uh, very short. But it's also a very powerful statement uh, towards the gra- or of the grace of God and the gospel long before uh, the fullness of the gospel was ever revealed through Christ. Uh, in fact, Martin Luther himself called this psalm, uh, Psalm 130, a Pauline psalm. And by that, what he meant was, uh, like the Apostle Paul, it speaks of salvation or, or um, the forgiveness of sin by grace alone, um, not by works. And it's this image of mercy at the hands of God. So uh, Martin Luther also wrote a great hymn based on this, and we're going to sing it after the, after the, the uh, sermon today. It's one of those rare chances where you think this matches up perfect. Uh, it is actually the psalm we are preaching today. So uh, if you got your Bibles, follow along. Psalm 130, we'll read the whole thing. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The grass withers and the flower fades. Let's pray. God, as we focus on these eight verses of Psalm 130 today, uh, we ask for enlightenment. Make our eyes to see your word as your word, uh, to love it for that very reason and to understand what it teaches us about our spiritual condition and about the great mercy that you have shown us by not leaving us in our sin. I ask that you'd push out every thought now that competes for our attention, that seeks to distract us from from hearing your word proclaimed. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the psalmist gets right to it, pretty intense. He begins from a location, or or what's more like a condition that he finds himself. And And it's not the mountaintop, right? It's not that kind of experience. But he says, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. The depths. And this is that, that low point. It's the pit of despair. It's the hopelessness. Uh, and his position here in the, in the depths is certainly this, this self-imposed. Uh, in a sense, he has dug himself this hole. But, but the depths is not just a deep hole. The, the Hebrew word here really carries the idea of it being this, this deep and this dangerous water. The only thing that makes a hole worse is when you're considering it covered in, in water. It's this, this common image, actually, throughout the Psalms. And, and the idea is well described in, in Psalm 69, verses 1 and 2, which says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. And so it's, it's not just this patiently being stranded in a hole, but this panic-stricken mentality or idea where he realizes, here I am and there's no escape, and it's, it's coming worse and worse. It's that sense of, of just having nothing beneath you, no rock to place your foot, no floating log to grasp onto. It's that terrifying image. And so he does what anyone would do in this situation. 
when they cannot save themselves. He, he cries out to someone else. He cries out to God to come and rescue him. When I was a, a junior in, in high school, I've been telling you a lot of these stories lately, but when I was a, a junior in high school, I was at a friend's ranch, and they owned a bunch of acres, and it was kind of a, a fun weekend thing. And uh, one of the things they had was a four-wheeler, and we were taking turns driving this one single four-wheeler around the ranch, and uh, everyone was coming back saying, you know what, those jumps were really fun. And so when I got on the four-wheeler and went out, um, I, what I saw was this huge dirt pile, uh, over five feet tall. Someone had just dumped it there like part of a construction project. And I wrongly assumed this must be the jump that everyone's thinking about. Um, and it, it wasn't. Uh, and so I, you know, cautiously drove over it, and that was fine. And I thought, all right, well, everyone else is talking about jumping. Uh, so eventually I got comfortable enough to just get the longest street, like, speed I could get, hit that thing as fast as I could. And, and I kind of imagined an X Games kind of picture of myself, you know, the Red Bull in my hand and flying over this hill. And, and that was what I thought was going to happen. And part of that was true. I absolutely got the air. It was amazing for less than a second. Uh, because in the air, the, the four-wheeler flipped. Uh, and in God's providence, it, it came down landing only on my ankle, nothing else. Uh, it would have just crushed me. Uh, and indeed, it did absolutely just crush my ankle, cutting through so things of all sorts. And, and I remember that, that panic afterwards when I thought, well, I need to get up and go get help, and I couldn't get up. Um, and, and looking down, I'm seeing blood come through my, my jeans and, and soaking through. And it was at that moment that I was just uh, afraid because I realized I can't even help myself. I'm so far away that I don't even know if they're going to be able to hear me. And, and yet I needed this rescue, and so I cried out for help. You know, just desperation, nothing good sounding, just crying like a baby basically at this point. Uh, but I needed rescue, and so I did cry out. And I don't know how long it was, but eventually my friends did hear my cry. They show up, a short ambulance ride, and a few surgeries later, my leg was fine. Um, point is, there are times when... Our only hope is to be rescued. We, we can't save ourselves. Now, I don't want you to mistake the situation here because the psalmist's situation here is not, is not with suffering. Um, suffering is terrible. Suffering is spoken of often in the Psalms, and uh, it's a reason that people do cry out to God for help when they're in that situation. But, but this psalm, Psalm 130, is not about suffering. Psalm 130 is about his sin. Um, you know, there is suffering, too, that comes as a result of, of sin. But the suffering here is not the primary issue. The, the Puritan, John, John Owen, made this point well. He, he said, sin is the disease. Affliction is only the symptom of it. And, and the psalmist knows this perfectly well. And, and that's why he says there in verse 3, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, iniquity is sin, O Lord, who could stand? If God only provided this list of our sin back to us, then there'd be no hope for anyone. Now, this psalm is, is not a favorite of many people today. Psalm 23 is, right? There's a, a number of psalms that really encourage us. This is not one of them. And the big reason for that is we don't really have this, this true sense of our, our sin today. And I'll, I'll say that even as, as Christians, most of our life is lived as though God simply doesn't exist. And, and, I, and I, here's what I mean. I, I know, we, we know that he exists, right? You're here this morning because you either believe God exists or, or you're hoping desperately that God exists or someone dragged you here because they care about you against your will. Those are the three ways you end up here this morning or you just wandered in, you don't know where you're at. Um, but 
really, most of our week, God's not really in the forefront of our thoughts. You know, we don't consider God when selecting a movie to watch or when we're out shopping for school supplies. What school supplies would God have me to buy? Uh, you know, we don't think about God when deciding what's for dinner. These are the, the everyday normal things. And I don't say that to shame us. I'm not saying, you know, like, pray about your school supplies. You certainly could, but I understand. Uh, but I say that because I want you to help you understand that the truth is we have a very relaxed view of sin today. And much of it is because we think so little about God. Um, you know, listen, you know, sin is only sin in relation to God. That's it. If you remove God from, from the day-to-day -day function of our lives, then we're also going to remove the weight of sin from our day-to-day -day functioning lives. You won't think about it. And, and I think it, it, it'll help us better understand if we, if we have a better understanding of what sin is, right? Uh, um, most of us, when we think of sin, we only have memorized the, well, I just kind of thought through it, shorter catechism, which is not a real catechism, but it defines sin as, you know, anything bad, anything harmful. It's just this vague idea of it. And um, the truth is, we have a, a much better catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It's not the Word of God. It does a wonderful job of summarizing what God's Word teaches, though, and, and it's part of our doctrinal statement, and it has this very helpful or answer to the question, what is sin? Some of you could probably repeat this back to me. And the answer is, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Um, which I know we don't really use the word want like that, do we? No one, ever, no one ever says, your effort today was wanting. You just look at them weird if they did. No, we, we say, your effort today was lacking. Um, so just to, to update this a bit, to make sure you understand this, so you don't lose this just because of a little language, it's sin is any lacking to conform to the law of God. See, it's in relation to God that sin is sin. So it's not primary even here speaking about the law of the land, of our nation, but the law of God, and that's an important distinction because, you know, things like, you shall have no other gods before me. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do not... Look lustfully upon a woman. Let your yes be yes. Do not be jealous of what your neighbor has. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Um, those aren't cultural ideas. Every one of those are from Scripture. And we could go on and on. And, and the more we did, the more we'd get this sense of our own failure to keep God's law. See, if we view sin too lightly, we're going to view Jesus too lightly. Our, our Savior. And I don't want us to do that, but, but if we're serious about sin, uh, we're going to get the sense of being in the depths of the water, rushing over us like a ravishing flood with no ground to place our, our feet. And apart from God, we find ourselves in a very desperate circumstance. Uh, our own sin has absolutely rendered us condemned. And so any true hope must come from outside of ourselves. And so this psalm would absolutely be crushing, right, if we stopped right there. If it ended after verse 3, crushing. You'd read it, you'd come to the point of your sin, and that would just be miserable. And that's why verse 4 is so beautiful. Verse, verse 4 is about rescue. Listen, verse 4 begins with that contrasting word, but... You know that wonderful word that is all so often followed by something unexpected that you don't really think you're going to see. And verse 4 says, but with you there is forgiveness. And that won't mean much to you if you don't have a genuine understanding of, of 
your sin or the place that sin has, has stranded you in. But if you know your sin, if you know that you are unworthy, then this will mean something amazing to you. I mean, do you hear this? With, with God, there is forgiveness. Real, eternal forgiveness. In Psalm 40, verse 2, it speaks a little about what God has done. There, listen, it says, He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps secure. Do you understand what all this means? I mean, do you understand what forgiveness is and what it means? I want to point out six aspects to it, okay? Um, We'll go through these fairly quick. Number one, God's forgiveness is is all-inclusive. God's forgiveness is all-inclusive. Some, some beach vacation packages, I did this once in my entire life, our honeymoon, uh, are all-inclusive, which means everything on the trip is completely paid for. All-inclusive. The transportation, the food, the drinks, the entertainment, uh, the room, everything is paid for in advance and done. And, and the point is, you don't need to keep trying to pay for things. It's, it's already been paid for. And because uh, of Christ on the cross, the forgiveness of, of God is all-inclusive. It's, it's for the one who has, has doubted, covered. It's for the one who has, has struggled against pornography and anger and lying and stealing and gossip and adultery and abortion and sexual sins of all sorts. The forgiveness that God offers covers the, the one who has murdered even. The one who can, <clears throat> the one who needs rescue from self-righteousness. You know, the forgiveness of God is is for the theologically incorrect, and it's for the theologically prideful. Whatever is listed in your many sins, there is an all-inclusive forgiveness to be had by the merciful hands of God. And so, whatever sin it is you think you need to hide, believing it too terrible to be forgiven, there is no need. You know, what sin do you think that you have that's so unique that that it excludes you from the grace that God offers in the gospel? Whatever it is, you're wrong. Whatever sin, you know, you bring to God asking to be forgiven in the name of Christ is nailed to the cross and forgiven. No matter how small or or large, it's already paid for in the all-inclusive work of the gospel. Uh, The second aspect of forgiveness is this. There is forgiveness available today, at this very moment. It's not just a future hope. It's our current satisfaction. And my my hope is that you are at this moment in your life forgiven because you are looking to Jesus with faith. But if that's not true, I want you to know that it could be. There are so many things that we have to wait for in this life patiently. A spouse, um, a child, a, a a job for, for God to set the world right? I mean, even, even Hot Pockets have to microwave for two minutes before they're ready, right? Almost everything we have to wait for. And, and this is one of the very few things in the world that are, that are truly great and can be had instantly. And that's because God has already done the work to accomplish it for you. Which leads to our third aspect. Forgiveness is for men and women and children who desire it. Universalism is an idea that all people everywhere are just forgiven. You won't find this idea in in the scriptures. Uh, It's not true, and if it was, it would only prove God to be unjust anyway. 
Uh, the biblical truth of forgiveness is that it is given to all who truly desire it as God offers it. And that means that we must confess our sin to God rather than simply try to hide it from God. You know, I, I can't find the source, but I remember hearing a story about a, a man, he lived in California, who was uh, arrested on drug possession. Um, and in this attempt to hide his sin from the community, uh, he went out and he bought every copy of the newspaper because printed on the front cover was a picture of him and, and the description of, of his, his great sin. Um, they later interviewed him. It all kind of came out. It unraveled for sure. Uh, and, and he said that he had this whole garage just full of newspapers that he'd gone around and bought up. And, and, and that he did so because this was just such an embarrassment to himself and to his family. And uh, the great irony of the story is that the sales were so good that day because he was buying them all that they went and printed another 500 uh, issues that later that day. Um, the author of Psalm 130 here writes this psalm, as he writes this psalm, I want you to notice that he is not at all trying to hide his sin. He gives no justification for it. Um, he's not denying that his sin is sin. Uh, it is there with his soul just laid bare that he is confessing it. Let that be a, a model for us. You know, don't, don't hide your guilt. Confess your guilt. Ask the Lord for forgiveness. And as we read this psalm through this, the lens of the gospel, we know that when we ask for forgiveness in the name of Christ, that we receive forgiveness in the name of Christ. The fourth aspect is that forgiveness is, is permanent. When God forgives, it's not a, a second chance. And you all know that's really good because we'd mess that up too. Uh, it's almost like the game Tetris. You remember playing that? Maybe it's my generation. I don't know who plays anymore. But um, every game you played, you might get a little better, but there was really no way to win the game. Eventually, you, you messed up. It just went until you messed up. That's, that's kind of the way it is. If you were given another chance and a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance, every time, you're just going to mess up eventually. And so the forgiveness that we receive at the hands of God is so certain that it is often referred to as indelible grace. You heard that word before? Indelible is something that does not fade. It's a mark that cannot be removed. All of our sin, past, present, and future, is forgiven completely. It's like Psalm 103.12 teaches us, as far as the east is from the west, so far does God remove our transgressions from us. Or as Isaiah 1.18 says, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. The fifth aspect I, I want to show you is this. Real forgiveness leads to godly living, which um, I think the, the idea of forgiveness often raises this question. You know, if our, if our sin is forgiven completely and our works do not earn that forgiveness, then doesn't that just lead people into to sinful living? Doesn't that just motivate them to just go nuts? The answer is No. And that's where verse 4 helps us, you know, understand this, this reality, um, you know, focus on the last point here. I want you to see this. It's, it's talking about God in both sections, and I think we expect it to say, um, with you, God, there is forgiveness that you, God, may be loved, may be loved, but that's not what it says, is it? Um, it's not loved. The verse actually says, with you, God, there is forgiveness that you, God, may be Feared. The result of this rescue from our sin 
is a fear of God because it shows us just how powerful he is. This, this fear is particularly in, in the sense of just awe and reverence and amazement at who God is and what he has done. It, it's this fear of God's amazing power, and yet it's this fear that brings reassurance and, and a sense of, of safety because we know that God in all his power, all his might, that it's for us. And that brings safety with the fear. You know, with forgiveness, there should be such gratitude to God such that really the only person who would actively, intentionally, without repenting, go and sin more and more is the one who really has no concept of the mercy that God actually shows to his children. You see, divine, eternal forgiveness changes people. Those who did not fear God now do fear God. And with a sense of the highest esteem and, and pure awe of God's majesty, and that changes our actual behavior as well. There's no way it doesn't. You remember what happened after the, the wee little Zacchaeus in Sycamore Tree? Remember that? Um, he was a corrupt man, but afterwards, the, after he encountered the mercy of Christ, he, he gave away half his wealth and, and to those in need, and, and he made this offer. He said, you know, I will pay back anyone I have defrauded. It changed him. Forgiveness changes people and it makes us more merciful to others because at some point it hits us in the face like a two by four that we are never ever going to be asked to forgive a man or a woman as much as God has already forgiven us. Ever. God's mercy to us then overflows in our mercy to others. So, so then I want to point out one last aspect of forgiveness. Um, forgiveness is endemistic. In language, great. We just make up words when we need them. To... Um, <clears throat> anyone know what that word means? Endemistic. I'm looking at Tim. You're the last hope I thought might know this word. Um, it's a scientific term, and, and it's specific. It, it means a certain species that only exists on one spot on the planet. Uh, for instance, there's a, a pink iguana that is only found in this 15 square mile segment of the Galapagos Islands, an area called uh, Isabella Island. It's close to a volcano. If you, if you need to find a pink iguana, there is literally no place else in the universe that you can go except for this 15 mile square type area to go find it. And, and in the same way, the forgiveness of sin is endemistic to Jesus Christ. You will find forgiveness in Jesus nowhere else. So then, God's forgiveness is all-inclusive. His forgiveness can be received at any moment, this very moment. Forgiveness is for men and women and children who desire it. It is permanent. That is the indelible. Uh, real forgiveness leads to godly living, and forgiveness is uh, endemistic, found only in Jesus Christ and nowhere else. And, and now, in verses 5 and 6, we see the psalmist is, is waiting on the Lord. He compares his, his waiting on the, to the way that a guard at night waits for the darkness. There's this anticipation. The guard desperately wants it to happen, and he's so sure of it. You know, it's, the expectation is, yes, the sun will rise. It's not a question. Um, it's waiting for it to actually happen. He's looking forward with his eager expectation for the results of redemption, for the, the intimacy that comes from forgiveness, that closeness that we have through God in the gospel. And here he, he states then that he finds his hope in the word of God. 
Oh, that you and I would find our hope in the Word of God. You know, because our, our hope's not in the, the good news that God reveals to us in His Word. Where, where is our hope? Money? Even the richest people will die and stand before the Lord. You know, where, where else do you put your hope? I, I really try to think of the best possible options here. You know, technology or, or medical advancement. Sometimes I, I hear about that, that, that hope. We'll just live forever once we get to some technological advancement. That's, that's no hope. You know, with all of our advancements, we, we might extend life longer, but eventually our bodies die. And I think you know that the only real place that we find hope is in the Lord Jesus. You know, there are, there are many titles that, that Jesus has has gone by. Many of them biblical. Some of them are given by people later. Uh, one of my favorite is the, is the name uh, The One Ancient Hope. Uh, it's a great title, isn't it? The One Ancient Hope. And, you know, doesn't that beautifully define who Jesus is for sinners like us? He is our one ancient hope. And, oh, so let's finish this psalm then and, and see that a little more. The, the last two verses are, are when the psalmist moves from concern for his own forgiveness to concern for the forgiveness of others. And that's a good response, you know, having received mercy and forgiveness at the hands of God. Uh, he now desires for, for Israel, it says here, to receive mercy at the hands of God as well. And, and maybe you've heard this explained, you know, evangelism explained before to you that uh, it's just being, it's just like one beggar showing another beggar where he might find bread. Uh, we're just one sinner showing another sinner where we found forgiveness. And then we, we see it here in verse 7 is, is addressed to Israel, right? The people of God, yes. But, but here the psalmist's concern from them is that they are the people in his culture. And he's commending them to the Lord because the Lord is good. You know, we, we might find it helpful even here if we were to, to change Israel to our own context as, as we long for those around us to find hope in, in our gracious God. You know, we might even read it in our heads, not really change scripture. I'm not really saying that, but so you'd understand this, you know. Uh, oh, Manhattan, hope in the Lord. For, the Lord. for in the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. Or, oh, K-State, Hope in the Lord, or oh, Fort Riley, or Junction City, or Riley County. Hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. You see, the, the same gospel that has granted you forgiveness can grant yet others forgiveness. And we see just how confident this hope is in that last verse, verse 8, when he writes, And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. It's talking about God himself doing the redeeming, um, the saving, God himself doing the, the securing of forgiveness. The, the disciples in the New Testament uh, were looking to God to be this, this great redeemer. They, they understood this for Israel. In fact, right after Jesus' death on the cross and, and before the disciples had any knowledge that Jesus was, uh, was resurrected back to life, they were walking on a road, and in Luke, 19, or Luke 24 and 21 records um, the disciples, and it's recording their disappointment because they don't know that Jesus is, is alive yet. They say, but we, have, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. That's what they thought. And what the disciples learned shortly after this is that Jesus is the one who redeems God's chosen people. He is. 
And you may wonder, you know, then what, what part does Jesus play in this really? Why, why didn't God just simply forgive? You know, you're forgiven. I'm done. That's a good question. And that's when we've got to be reminded that, that God is not an unjust God. God is a just God. And that means he must punish sin, not overlook sin. Not just forgive it without payment. At, at the death of Jesus on the cross, it all became very clear that he was and that he is the payment for the sins of many. That, that's the point of Romans 6.23, which teaches us, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wages, that's, that's what we've earned. You, me, our, our deeds have earned us death in every sense of the term. But the mercy of God, the love of God, led him to, to a place where God had to make a payment for for our forgiveness, a payment that, that God made to himself. Which is why, in the words of Isaiah, Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. Uh, so let's bring this to a close, and, and here's what I need you to know. Uh, if your faith is in Christ this day, then that payment was for you. God has heard your cry from the pit, and he has rescued you. Rejoice in your forgiveness. Rest in the gospel. Not as just something, but, but really actively rest as you know just how much you have been rescued for. Um, and graciously show others where they too may receive the mercy that you've received. And I, I know that's not true of everyone. And, and so if you're here today and your faith is not in Jesus Christ, you need to know that forgiveness is offered to all who will receive it. Yes, even you. And so cry from the depths to God in prayer and, and know that he will hear you. Let's pray. Lord, in these eight verses, we find a genuine assessment of our spiritual condition. And it's not good. Uh, we are far worse off than we might imagine. But Lord, we also find hope, glorious hope, a, a hope that looks to your steadfast love for us, a hope that is sure and fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ who has proven his love and his mercy to your chosen people by being the sacrifice for our iniquities, for our sin. Lord, may we... May we come to your table today with a, a renewed sense of gratitude for how you have rescued us. And may we go from this building today with a renewed sense of wonder at your great mercy towards us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.